Today's date, 29th November 1973. Interview with Mr. Jeffrey Quill for the January 1974 issue of Aerospace. Question number one. Flying in the circuit at Shoreham, Lansing College is a dominant landmark. How dominant was Shoreham in your interest in flying? Well, Shoreham, you mean when I was a, a boy at Lansing? Um, well, Shoreham certainly was a stimulus to my interest in flying, but I was uh, very much interested in it before I ever went to Lansing. And I think there were greater stimuli than uh, Shoreham available to me when I was at school. Um, one of my chores uh, as a fag, or underschool as we called them, was working in the school library and as such I had the privilege of being able to go into the school library during hours when it was not permitted for other boys to do so and um, I used to spend a tremendous amount of time reading uh, about flying and reading the magazines, flights in the airplane and Cranwell magazines, anything I could lay my hands on. Well, uh, when I was uh, very small, we lived uh, in Little Hampton. We had a other one of those large houses on the front. And for some reason or another, there seemed to be always a lot of um, Royal Flying Corps officers in and out of there. Uh, all sorts of people were in and out of there during World War One. But uh, I remember these fellows particularly, and I always uh, regarded them as uh, some kind of a god. Question number two. What did you do about it? Well, I think what I did about it was to make up my mind that I was going to join the Royal Air Force when I grew up, come what? Well, of course, I had intended to go to Cranwell, but um, when the, the time came to leave school, in fact, there were some family reasons for not doing this, and I took a short service commission in the Royal Air Force instead at the age of 18 in 1931. And um, uh, I, of course, um, had uh, made every effort to uh, try to get a permanent commission. I, uh, after passing out from Grantham, I spent two years in a fighter squadron, 17th squadron, and I then spent uh, two years in um, the Met flight, and which was a very interesting experience. And I was posted to Martlesham, but um, before uh, taking up this posting, I was then offered a job as an assistant test pilot at Vickers. Um, I was offered that job by Mutt Summers, who was then the chief test pilot. Uh, at that time, and this, of course, was a tremendously tempting uh, offer to me, but uh, I was very reluctant to leave the Royal Air Force, and I tried very hard to find out whether or not I was going to be on the list for permanent commissions. This was, of course, at the time, in 1935, when the uh, expansion scheme was well underway, and uh, rather larger number of permanent commissions were then being awarded to short service officers. But I couldn't find out in time, and the job wouldn't wait. So after about sort of two, 
agonizing weeks, I then applied to leave the service slightly prematurely at the end of my short service commission and go as test pilot to Vickers, and this was approved. So I, in fact, joined Vickers Armstrong, or Vickers as it then was, uh, Vickers Aviation Limited, as uh, a test pilot at Weybridge on the 7th of January, 1936. Question number three. To me, and possibly to most, you are associated with the Spitfire. The second one, that is, not the first. How did this come about? Uh, well, you're, of course, you're w referring to the old uh, Gullwing Spitfire of 1934, not the one that we... we know about, so you're quite right, it was the second Spitfire. Um, well, this came about, as I said, I joined the company as an assistant test pilot at Weybridge, and in those days, Supermarines was part of uh, Vickers uh, Aviation Limited, it had been bought some four or five years before, and um, there was a tremendous amount going on at Vickers at that time. At Weybridge, we ha were just beginning to fly the prototype Wellesley. And, uh, uh, and, or, and bring that into production. And uh, the prototype Wellington was uh, due to fly in a few months' time. Uh, there was a little fighter called, which eventually became called the Venom, which was a derivative of the old jockey. That was due to fly uh, during the summer. And then there was this aeroplane um, down at Supermarines, commonly known as Mitchell's Fighter, which um, was uh, also due to fly in the early part of the year, so there was clearly a great deal of uh, exciting things going on. Um, well, uh, Matt Summers, as the chief test pilot, was responsible not only for the for the development of flying, not only at uh, Vickers Weybridge, but also at Supermarines. And as I was his assistant, I managed to get involved in all these airplanes that I've mentioned. Now, the uh, Spitfire prototype, the first Spitfire as we know it, um, appeared uh, in, in March of uh, 1936. It made its first flight flown by Mount Summers, I think I'm right in saying on March the 6th, 1936. And um, I actually made my first flight on it on the 23rd, I think, or the 26th of March, 1936. I really ought to check that in my logbook. Well, you ask um, what we all thought about the Spitfire when we started flying it in that March of 1936. Uh, it's interesting. I think we uh, all recognized at once that this was a very unusual aeroplane. It really was something rather special. Um, it was tremendously exciting, uh, I think more than anything else, because it obviously had such a remarkable performance in the context of those days, uh, and um, was in some strange way an extremely uh, interesting and exciting aeroplane to fly. Um, we had, of course, uh, various uh, difficulties with it. It didn't, uh, it, it, there was quite a lot of development that had to be done on the prototype. Uh, and we 
had to develop it quite a lot, both in its performance and certainly in its handling, uh, before we sent it up to Martlesham. But uh, I think it would be right to say that uh, all of us who flew it in those very early days, and that was Mutt Summers and uh, George Pickering and myself, there were three of us flying it on the program, as it were, in the early days, we all had uh, tremendous um, confidence in it. Uh, it. It really was a most extraordinary uh, experience. Oh, I, uh, how many Spitfires did I fly? Well, goodness knows. I would have to do a lot of research into my log for that. Um, we built 22,750 of them altogether. Uh, these were built um, at, uh, in the southern area, which, as we called it, the supermarine area, which during the war became dispersed all over Hampshire and Wiltshire um, and Berkshire. Uh, then there was this enormous... Uh, uh, factory up at Castle Bromwich, which churned them out at a colossal rate from the end of 1940 onwards. And there were various uh, firms like uh, Westlands and Cunley Bones uh, who were turning them out on a subcontract basis. Um, I, of course, did fly a tremendous number of production airplanes. Uh, there was always a great sort of panic. Uh, in, in getting these aeroplanes flown and tested in a way. But um, really, my time on the Spitfire was very largely spent on the development um, flying, uh, right from the prototype onwards. And of course, from 1940 onwards, we had a very uh, increasingly large um, uh, development test section uh, with a lot of airplanes and the whole story of the Spitfire really was one of, of development um, and that was um, what I was principally involved in. Um, well, when did I make my last flight in the Spitfire? Well, that was in June 1966 and um, of course what happened was that um, Sometime after the war, it would have been uh, in, the, in the early, very early 1950s, I think it may have been 51 or 52. Yes, it would have been uh, sometime in the early 50s. We realized at Supermarines that uh, we'd built all these airplanes, and um, here it was uh, several years after the war, and we hadn't actually got one. So we decided we'd uh, have to do something about that, and we shopped around, and uh, I finally bought, uh, on behalf of the company, um, a Spitfire, an old wartime Spitfire from Alan Wheeler, our Commodore Alan Wheeler, who had laid his hands on this thing somehow. And um, it was, in fact, a, a, an old Mark V. It was the oldest one we could find, which was, was in fact reasonably good condition. It was built in uh, 1941, I think. Um, but it was it had a few slightly hybrid features about it. Anyhow, we reconditioned this airplane uh, completely, rebuilt it, uh, uh, did it up in uh, its original RAF uh, camouflage colors and so on. And then I used to fly this airplane around to various air displays, which go to a lot of sort of RAFA 
displays and other charity occasions. And we kept this airplane going up until 1965, and it was a tremendous fun. Uh, it was really marvellous to, to have this sort of thing to fly, uh, particularly after a fairly long gap after the war. One had mostly been flying for the jet aircraft and so on. And then uh, in 1965 it became a little too difficult to maintain it as a company and there were problems. So I telephoned Zulu Morris, who was then the commander-in-chief of uh, RAF Fighter Command and said, uh, how would you like to have this Spitfire back where it belongs in Fighter Command? And he said uh, he would very much like to have it, and but he would have to get the establishment of the historic aircraft flight at Coltishall um, increased by one Spitfire, and uh, this took a certain amount of uh, negotiating with the Air Ministry, and finally they said yes, they'd like to have it. And I flew it up to Coltshaw on Battle of Britain Day in 1965, and handed it over to the Royal Air Force, who took it back and have kept it uh, at Coltshaw ever since, and it's often to be seen flying around. And uh, it had the old wartime squadron markings of 92 squadron on it, which uh, QJ and the ind individual ident J, so it became quite a well-known aircraft as QJJ, and it's still often to be seen. Uh, I said that I, my last flight was in 1966 because, uh, in fact, I flew it once more during 1966 for French television company who were making a documentary film on the Battle of Britain. And, uh, I've never flown myself again. I decided that that was it. I think it was 30, it was just 30 years since I um, made the first flight uh, on the prototype. I made my first flight on the prototype. And uh, I decided to call it a day after that. Question number four. Why did you go back to the RAF? and then, strangely enough, become a lieutenant commander in the Royal Navy. Well, when I went to Vickers as a test pilot in, from the Royal Air Force in 1936, I was automatically put onto what was known as Class C of the Reserve, uh, the Royal Air Force Reserve, and uh, this meant that I was not able to be called up on the outbreak of war because uh, it was considered that um, somebody presumably had to do this uh, test flying work. This, uh, when, when the war actually did start in 1939 and I was not called up, this uh, did rather distress me. And, um, however, uh, there were, there were uh, one, uh, I went or sort of tried to wangle things but without uh, success. But when in May 1940, or the, around about May, June 1940, at the time of the fall of France, I decided that uh, that was, uh, that enough was enough, and I made some very energetic um, uh, 
attempts to extricate myself from the supermarines and get back into fight command. This actually, I finally succeeded in doing this, and I joined number 65 fighter squadron at Hornchurch in um, beginning of August 1940, uh, very much to my relief, I have to say. Um, and uh, I very much enjoyed my time there. We, we were part of the Hornchurch wing, and we had a very interesting and quite exciting time. And then um, the squadron was uh, sent up up north for a rest, and I made um, a big mistake then. I endeavored to transfer to one of the other squadrons at Hornchurch, and um, th there was a, the next thing that I knew was that I had been told to go back to Supermarines and carry on with the um, flight testing of a, of really the first development of the Spitfire, which was just due to which was a thing called the Mark III, which in fact never went into production. So um, there I, I find myself back to where I started. Um, but there was so much to be done, and uh, the life was so hectic that uh, really uh, there wasn't uh, much to be done about it. Uh, one day it was full from morning to night. Later on, in the, we started course, making Spitfires into Seafires, and they became quite a, an important part of the fleet air arm. And uh, the Spitfire wasn't really the best possible naval aircraft, it, uh, but we managed to make it work. But I found myself getting involved in all sorts of meetings and discussions about uh, um, Spitfires uh, as, as deck landing aircraft and naval aircraft generally. And of course, I knew absolutely nothing about this, and I managed to persuade Admiral Boyd, who was then the Fifth Sea Lord, to let me um, go and fly operationally in the fleet arm so that I could learn something about the problems. And um, so almost overnight I suddenly find myself disguised as a Lieutenant Commander A and doing um, a quick deck landing course um, up at... Um, East Haven. This was uh, towards the end of 1943. And I spent uh, nearly 12 months, uh, very happy months, in the um, fleet air arm. Uh, and I did a great deal of flying on and off carriers in all sorts of aircraft. I think I deck landed almost every type of aircraft um, in the fleet air arm at that time. I managed to uh, something over a hundred deck landings, and um, I learned a great deal, and I made a lot of friends, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. But uh, it wasn't long before I finished up uh, back at Supermarines again. Uh, by which time, um, aircraft like the spiteful were beginning to appear. Question number five: What has happened since the war? Well, um, the. Spitfire went on, of course, uh, after the war. There was quite a lot of development work uh, to do on it. We were then getting into things like Spitfire 22s and 24s and uh, Seafire 47s and so on. Um, I didn't, it, after the war, 
quite a year or two, we did quite a lot of uh, deck landing trials on various things. And then um, we had a spiteful and seafang aircraft, which uh, never came to anything very much, but uh, we did a bit, we had, we, they did actually go, were delivered in service, and we built quite a lot, um, not by Spitfire standards, but by quite a lot by modern standards, and there was quite a bit of flying to do on those, and we did a good deal of experimental flying of various sorts, uh, sort of big, certain amount of research flying, should we say. Um, then we produced the first um, um, jet aircraft from Vickers. This was the attacker, or became the attacker. I did the first flight on that in, I think, July 1946. And that eventually went in service in the Royal Navy and was the first uh, jet aircraft that uh, ever operated from aircraft carriers uh, on a squadron basis. Um, then, at the end of 1948, um, I, or was at the end of 1947, I lost my medical category, and that put me out of action for about uh, three years, um, by which time uh, I uh, therefore took on a, uh, a ground job, and uh, Mike Lifko, who had who I had taken on at Super Marines uh, just at the end of the war, um, took over from me. And um, I was able to resume flying again, I think, in about, um, in about 1949 or 50. But by that time, uh, it, I'd got sort of fairly dug in on other occupations, and there was no point in going back to test flying, but I managed to keep my um, flying going um, by one means or another. Well, I have been almost entirely on, exclusively on the, what you might call the marketing side of the house, um, and uh, uh, I, as a result of that, I, we, I, I, I did quite, a, we had some quite interesting sales tours with various aircraft, um, including Vikings and Valettas, attackers and so on. Um, and I have been in on the marketing side really ever since. Um, I, when uh, when uh, uh, in 1957, um, supermarines really ceased to exist as a as a sort of a separate aircraft company, and uh, many of us were integrated into Vickers uh, at Weybridge, and I um, went up to Weybridge, I think it was in 56 or 57, started an organization there. I was asked by George Edwards to start a thing called the Military Aircraft Office, which um, was um, there to um, really uh, promote uh, our interests in military aircraft, both uh, at home and abroad. And this involved me in a lot of traveling. And then, of course, the big thing that happened was the TSR-2. And um, from 1957 onwards, when the first uh, general operational requirement for TSR-2 was forming, 
um, I got I was very deeply involved in that uh, right from the beginning oh yes well what I'm doing now um, uh, my sort of official titles is I'm the sales director of Sepicat, which is the Anglo-French company formed between BAC and um, Avion Marcel Dassault Breguet Aviation in France to manage the Tegra program. And um, so I'm responsible for um, the selling of uh, Jaguar uh, in conjunction with uh, my own department at Weybridge and also uh, uh, the divisional sales organization at um, Wharton, BAC, Military Aircraft Division at Wharton, uh, do cover a large piece of the world on Jaguar sales under Glenn Hobday. Uh, then also, I'm director of marketing for Panavia, which is the Anglo-German-Italian company responsible for the MRCA program. Question number six. In military sales, how do you rate your company's fighter product range and Britain's prospects in the future? Well, I think in answer to that question, one must talk about the Jaguar and the MRCA. Uh, the Lightning, of course, uh, has really come to the end of its production life and uh, probably, will, well, probably will not be any more light, Lightning sales. Um, how do I rate the prospects? Well, I rate the export prospects of Jaguar very highly indeed. Not sure that uh, we would, uh, I would describe it as a fighter product. The, uh, Jaguar, of course, is a low-level tactical aircraft. It's a, a close air support um, interdictor strike reconnaissance system, a very sophisticated one, a very good one. Uh, it is a category of aircraft which I think has got um, uh, tremendously wide um, application and will undoubtedly have um, a large sales future, partly because uh, it's a well-thought-out aircraft and partly because uh, I think it's very cost-effective. The MRCA, of course, is much uh, further away in time. Uh, we're looking forward to flying the first MRCA prototypes in the early part of uh, 1974. Um, it doesn't come into full production until later on in this decade. But, of course, it is a tremendously interesting aircraft. Um, there's a program of uh, coming up for 800 aircraft planned for the air forces of Great Britain and Germany and Italy and also the German Navy uh, is a really important NATO weapon system. And I find it very difficult to suppose that this will not have a considerable export future as well. Question number seven. The sands of time have not run, run out for the man-fighter. Will they? When? And why? 
Yes, I notice you spell the sounds of time with a Y on the end of it. Um, no, they have not run out for the manned combat aircraft, I would rather say. The word fighter, I think, is associated in everybody's mind, really, with the sort of classical, very high-performance uh, interceptor fighter designed to fly at very great speeds and very great heights and uh, enormous rate of time and to be uh, integrated into a very sophisticated ground environment to destroy aircraft in the air. Um, this, uh, in, in other words, is a task air defense role, and whilst there certainly is a continuing requirement for air defense fighters, I think it's very much a receding requirement. And the real action in the future is in the low-level roles and the deep penetration interdictor strike roles and close air support roles. This is where the action is. And um, so I prefer to talk about combat aircraft whether the, rather than fighter aircraft, which can be misleading. I would say, therefore, in answer to your question, that the sands of time definitely have not run out for um, the manned combat aircraft. In fact, now that the strategic delivery systems are long-range intercontinental ballistic missiles, um, the, the day of the very long-range, high-flying uh, bomber, of course, are finished, except in exceptional circumstances. Um, the role of air forces, therefore, has tended uh, in recent years to become very strongly tactical rather than strategic in the old sense. Um, tactical air forces have been very much on the up and up. There are a variety of reasons for this, particularly within NATO. Um, and I simply cannot see uh, this um, aircraft requirement receding. The, the need and the importance of tactical aircraft will not proceed, and of tactical air forces will not proceed. Now, this I'm sure. We hear a great deal, of course, about SAMs and so on, uh, but I think um, the there's a great danger of um, a, a lot of misinterpretation of um, recent events and some recent wars. Uh, one always has to be very, very careful, particularly in the NATO context, not to be misled by um, various uh, red herrings on that issue. So, in short, um, the importance of tactical air forces is increasing rather than receding, and the, the importance of the manned combat aircraft is um, certainly not decreasing. Question number eight. Have you any interests outside of aviation?
Well, that's always a difficult question. I have had a, a, a lot of interest outside of aviation. Many years when I lived um, down uh, near the Hamble River when I was at Supermarines, I, uh, particularly after the war, I became very interested in sailing. I did a great deal of sailing, got a great deal of racing, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, during the uh, during the 1960s, largely by chance, I suddenly got involved in powerboat racing, and that I found the most interesting um, uh, and enjoyable and exciting sport. I had a few years of that. Um, I've always been interested in boats and ships, and uh, I was fortunate enough to have um, a great friend who was, uh, I think it would be fair to say, one of our leading naval architects, particularly in um, this sort of thing, and that was Peter Duquesne of Rospers. And um, I had a great deal of fun um, in that sort of an interest. I've always been, uh, I, I read a good deal, I'm quite interested in reading, and uh, I golf, and uh, I um, enjoy uh, the theatre very much now that I live in London. And for a long time I used to do a good deal of gardening, not that I particularly liked it, but that, um, it just had to be done, and uh, so I got quite interested in that particularly in uh, trees. Otherwise, I have no great uh, sort of um, standing hobbies like uh, of, of, of an unusual sort, like mountaineering or anything of that sort. Question number nine, have you any unfulfilled ambitions? Yes, I've got one or two. I should certainly uh, very much like to have, or to perhaps still have the opportunity, I should like to sail across the Atlantic in a sailing boat, not single-handed. I would just like to make the crossing uh, by sea uh, in a yacht. Um, I certainly didn't get anywhere near achieving uh, my ambitions um, as a test pilot. I was, my career as a test pilot was uh, cut short uh, in 1948. Um, Due to medical reasons, uh, I was, how old then, 35, I suppose, 34, 35, and uh, certainly I had not ever contemplated uh, stopping at that time, and I was getting quite interested in the, of course, we were right at the beginning of the sort of year of the jet aircraft, and I was bitterly disappointed in that. So that was an unfulfilled ambition, uh, or frustrated ambition. I would like to have gone on a lot longer. I was young, I think that, uh, and I never really got, had the opportunity. I always had an idea, I would rather like to have um, been a steeplechase jockey, I think, but uh, I never got anywhere near that one. Um, but it's the sort of thing which I believe I would have very much enjoyed. And uh, I think it's, um, I've always had the greatest admiration for these uh, traps. Uh, once or twice I've uh, thought about uh, uh, writing books and uh, never got around to it. Uh, it. It seems to me to, to be, um, uh, writing books seems to me to be essentially a problem of time. Uh, if you depends, of course, what sort of book that we have to write, but 
seems to me to involve a colossal amount of research, a colossal amount of time, and uh, I just uh, don't have the time. I don't seem to be able to have enough time to do my job properly, let alone um, uh, write books, but uh, maybe I'll uh, get down to it when I retire. I think, in fact, that will be the first thing I should do when I retire, but um, I have to reluctantly admit that uh, the way things go at the moment, I don't see myself doing it before that. Question number 10. Is there any question you would have wished me to ask, and what would have been your answer? Well, I would have thought uh, perhaps you might have asked me about some of the people that I was involved, uh, have been involved in uh, when I was a test pilot, uh, particularly uh, some of the designers and uh, some of the other pilots. Now, um, if you ask me who was the best pilot that I ever met, in my opinion, I would say, without a moment's hesitation, Alex Henshaw. I don't know whether you knew Alex Henshaw, but um, he was, uh, in my opinion, a quite extraordinary pilot. Now, in the old days, of course, um, there were good pilots and bad pilots. This doesn't really happen today. But in the old days, for instance, before there were any real, real aids to flying in bad weather, some pilots could uh, cope with bad weather in the most extraordinary way. And uh, the, the vast majority of pilots uh, could not. Um, now, uh, it would take too long to enlarge upon this, but uh, Alex Henshaw was in charge of the getting all the testing done on the enormous output of Spitfires at Castle Bromwich during the war. Um, uh, and in the winter weather, it was very bad. Uh, the flight clearance schedule of the Spitfire was quite a lengthy business and, and uh, involved climbing them up to 20-odd thousand feet, doing a lot of uh, running back and forth, checking this and checking that, and diving up to max VD and so on, and getting the thing back without any RT or any homing aids whatsoever. And uh, w what Alex Henshaw used to do um, in this respect, uh, without going to this, was uh, unbelievable. I, I believe very few people I've occasionally talked to really uh, believe it. They always think I'm, I'm exaggerating. The other thing is, I think that, um, I, I don't know whether you've ever researched very much or looked into the details of the flight that he made from um, Gravesend to Cape Town and back in that little Mughal airplane just before the war. It was in 1938, I think. Uh, it was a very specially uh, fitted up Mughal, an interesting airplane, very interesting airplane in itself. Um, the record that he put up from London to Cape Town and back is still unbeaten. No pilot has ever flown from London to Cape Town and back in a shorter time, even today. Uh, I used to, uh, I got to know Alex first in 1940, and I used to question him a lot and get him talking about this uh, trip. and. Uh, Somebody one day ought to write it up, and in fact, uh, I'm happy to say that he has recently um, done so in, in a book, and uh, uh, which I hope is going to be published.
So I think that I would ask, uh, answer unquestionably that uh, he was the most remarkable pilot that I ever encountered. He was a marvellous aerobatic pilot, and uh, it uh, may sound rather pompous, but I think that uh, he was the only pilot I ever met who could uh, fly Spitfire better than I could. The only, only man that I would, uh, would concede that to. Well, now, as to other people, uh, I had really, uh, as a test pilot, I had a lot to do with three uh, great designers, three very different men. Um, one was Rex Pearson, who was the chief designer at uh, Vickers Waybridge when I first joined there. And of course, he was responsible for an enormous number of aircraft, but when I went there, we, we were doing the flight development on the Wellesley, and then we started on the Wellington and the Jockey, or rather the Venom, as it became known. Uh, he was a tremendous character, and um, very uh, a marvellous chap, really, um, from whom I learnt a, a, a very great deal. In those days, there was no sort of pilots' courses or schools. You couldn't go to the ECPS. Uh, you just had to pick it up as you went along. But it had the great advantage also in those days that, uh, that we had very close contact with the designers all the time. I mean, after sort of practically every flight, you had some kind of a debriefing with the chief designer. And um, um, then, of course, there was R.J. Mitchell. Now, he was, uh, you know, the man who designed the Spitfire and all the Schneider Trophy seaplanes for it. Um, he was uh, a, a marvellous man, and I always he was a rather, should we say, choleric, choleric man. Uh, he didn't suffer fools gladly, and was liable to um, sound off a bit every now and again. But he was a very basically kind and uh, and super and very thoughtful man. Um, I always remember that he had an old yellow Rolls-Royce, which uh, he got from somewhere, a rather old sort of yellow barouche, 20-horsepower Rolls. And, um, of course, at Supermarines in those days, we flew. We were flying a prototype Spitfire from Eastleigh, uh, which was now Southampton Airport. The works were down Wollstone on the Itchen River, about five miles away. And uh, I always remember that... Uh, one used to, from flying Spitfire, one used to get in and go off on a flight test, which would probably last 40 minutes or an hour or something of that sort. And it always intrigued me that um, when I used to come back uh, into the circuit uh, before landing, I would look down at the tarmac as I passed over the top of the sheds, and uh, there I would see old Mitch's yellow Rolls Royce, and of course what had happened was that somebody would be rung up from the airfield and said Spitfire's just taken off, and so he used to go and camber into his old Rolls and come up, and he would always be waiting there um, when one landed, and then he would walk over with his hands in his pocket and sort of listen to the debrief and generally ask a few questions and make not much comment. But uh, he was always there, and um, I, I have very happy memories of him and all sorts of interesting conversations I had with him, which I've never forgotten. He was the most uh, remarkable man. And 
richly deserve the, um, I would say, richly deserve the, the sort of fame and, um, which came to him really after his death. Uh, it couldn't have been more uh, well deserved. And um, I very well remember the last time I saw him, which was not very long before he died. Well, then, um, of course, uh, Joe Smith. The, the mantle of Mitchell fell upon Joe Smith. Um, and it was Joe Smith uh, who was really responsible for the absolutely fantastic um, amount of development. The whole development of the Spitfire was an extraordinary story, uh, if one just takes the bare facts of it, which I won't uh, try to recite now. Um, Mitchell died, you see, before we'd ever flown a production of Spitfire. He died in um, 1937, when we had been flying the prototype for just over a year. He never saw a production of Spitfire, never saw one leave the ground. Um, it was Joe Smith who picked it up, and um, he did undoubtedly do a most fantastic job. This has been pretty well, it's pretty well documented. Uh, in fact, Joe himself um, wrote a, read a lecture at the Aeronautical Society just giving the basic facts of the development of the Spitfire back in 1946. In a very sort of modest, uh, deadpan way, he put it across. But um, he was a chap of tremendous drive, and um, he was a real sort of practical, kind of hard-ass engineer, and uh, just the, this was just what he needed uh, to give him a, an airplane like the Spitfire that had been marvelously designed in the first place by Mitchell. And I, I don't think that uh, anybody would resent me saying that I don't think Joe Smith could have designed that airplane from scratch. But by golly, when it had been done, he knew what to do with it. And he um, kept it absolutely in the front line of uh, fighter aircraft for so long, right through the war. And, uh, so his contribution was enormous, and um, then I think the other thing one would rather like to say, uh, again, going harking back to Spitfire days, is of course that um, the colossal uh, contribution that was made by a lot of people, senior people in the design organization, because uh, the design organization is an organization. It's a big organization. It's heavily dependent on the inputs of a large number of people. And very f a lot of these chaps um, get, uh, nobody much hears much about them. It would be certainly invidious for me to start uh, reading out uh, names, uh, but um, it is these rather unsung designers and engineers and people without whom uh, things like Spitfires or any other airplanes simply cannot happen uh, that one would rather welcome the opportunity to sort of paying tribute to Orm Block, so to speak. Well, then, of course, uh, there's George Edwards. Um, when I first went to um, Vickers in 1936, George Edwards, I think, had only been there for a year, and he was a draftsman. And uh, his uh, rise in the organization was meteoric, and, and rightly so. 
but uh, he did come up uh, through the design organization and was indeed chief designer for some time. Um, he is a, a, a very remarkable and unusual man, a man of this is no doubt uh, whatsoever. And um, I have uh, found it um, very interesting to see this uh, sort of startling uh, career uh, as it um, unfolded with an enormous uh, background of achievement. That's the end of the interview for Airspace with uh, Mr. Jeffrey Quill.